This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Department of the Interior is taking steps to amplify the voices of tribal leaders in managing federal lands. The Biden administration insists tribes' cultural connection and knowledge of the environment qualifies them as co-managers and will approve regard for sacred and culturally important land. Critics argue such agreements will only add to bureaucracy and limit resource development. We'll hear about that and recent news about the Wounded Knee Massacre site. That's all coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration on Friday approved a request from Alaska's governor for a federal disaster declaration after a powerful storm battered more than a thousand miles of coastline in the northernmost state last weekend. The declaration frees up funding through the Federal Emergency Management Agency to aid in storm recovery. As Emily Schwing reports, more than 40 Alaska Native communities are now facing a serious threat to their food security. In at least two communities, dozens of residents have been displaced after their homes were ripped from their foundations by floodwater. The storm surge included hurricane-force winds that also destroyed boats people rely on for both transportation and hunting and fishing. Ryan Bukowski is one of nearly 1,000 residents in the village of Chivak. I mean, even the people that go out with working boats right now, that's not even enough to feed the community with what subsistence food that they need that they haven't already lost due to power outage. Bukowski and many other Alaskans lost power for days after the storm. Without electricity, the freezers where many people store all their fish, meat and berries and other locally harvested foods for winter have thawed. Lots of that food is now spoiled. Dozens of hunting and fishing camps central to the subsistence lifestyle observed by many residents in rural Alaska were also damaged or destroyed. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing. Communities of color remain consistently affected by COVID-19 at higher rates than whites. That's according to an Oregon Health Authority review. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. OHA's latest year-in-review report shows that in both 2020 and 2021, Black, Native American, and Latinx Oregonians suffered higher rates of hospitalizations and death than whites. Researchers list lack of access to health care, lower-income jobs, crowded workspaces, and distrust in government as factors. Kelly Rouse, the executive director of Health Services for the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. She says OHA's finding matches what she's seen this year as well. We are still having fairly high rates of COVID infection out at Grand Ronde. Right after the holiday Labor Day weekend, mostly BA5, this most recent variant is incredibly infectious. You know, the congregating people, it really rose pretty significantly. OHA says data on race was available for 73% of all reported cases last year. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of five tribal bills on Friday. One requires state agency leaders to take training, improve communication, and interact with tribes on government-to-government issues. The second one creates a feather alert system for missing and murdered indigenous people. It's similar to those used in cases of abducted children. 
The third encourages schools and county offices to engage with tribes in their area and provide accurate education about Native history and culture. The fourth bill authorizes the University of California Hastings College of Law to remove the name of its founder who slaughtered tribal people in the 1800s and rename the school with tribal input. The fifth bill requires the renaming of California geographic features, landmarks, public lands, and structures that use the SQ word by January 1st, 2024. All five bills were authored by Native American lawmaker James Ramos. The governor signed the package of bills on California Native American Day. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. Did you know one in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Or that one in 10 people will have a seizure? Call 1-800-332-1000 to speak with an epilepsy information specialist. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The U.S. Department of Interior just issued new guidelines it says will strengthen the role of tribal governments in federal land management. They're part of a directive Interior Secretary Deborah Holland signed last year designed to increase tribal stewardship to better protect public lands that are sacred or culturally important. Government and tribal leaders point to co-management plans for Bears Ears National Monument in southeastern Utah as a model. Today we'll look at how the new direction from the U.S. government is working and how it could change public land management going forward. We're also going to hear about the recent finalized agreement giving tribes control over the Wounded Knee Massacre site in South Dakota. As always, we invite you to chime in. What do you think? Are agreements between tribes and the federal government a good solution for protecting important lands? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open now. Our first guest is on the line in Washington, D.C., Dr. Suzanne Schoen-Harjo. She is the Senior Policy Advisor for the Sacred Places Project with the Native American Rights Fund, a founding trustee with the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and president of the Morningstar Institute. She is also a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She is Cheyenne and Hodolgi Muskogee. Suzanne, great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Well, thank you so much. Well, Suzanne, co-management of culturally significant public lands uh, just seems to make a whole lot of sense from a Native perspective. So how big a win is this overall for Native people? Well, it's half a loaf. Co-management is half a loaf. The very first thing that should be uh, considered and put in place if the Native peoples want it to be considered and put in place is 
giving the land back. I mean, land back means something. It means something that so many Native people embrace that concept and embrace it as an agenda and embrace it as a goal. So land back is 100%. Co-management is half a loaf. That's So it's not a good starting place. It's not a bad place to end up if that's the way the Native people want to go. But we have to get away from this idea that that we are part of what is being managed along with the territory, with the tangible resource. We have to get away from that because we're not the ones to be managed. But as long as we're only considered to be consulting partners or people who can manage a little bit but not everything and have to have a whole lot of help, that's the kind of thing that that we really have to get past or we're not going to do anything really to protect our sacred places. The, the co-management idea is something that should be secondary. So land back is first, if the Native people want it there, want it to be that. Co-management uh, is good. Joint stewardship is good. All of these things are good and can protect and can do a good job. But they can't just be people wanting to pretend that they're doing a, a thorough pr protection job by calling something the Great Protection of Sacred Places Bill or that kind of initiative. You can't just take the cream off the top and pretend you've done something for the thousands of items that need to be done because of the centuries of abuse that Native sacred places have undergone. So I really think that um, anyone looking at this area has to look at it in a deeper way than the selfie generation is accustomed to these days. <laughs> the selfie generation. I like how you, you bring that in there. And I really like that half a loaf analogy. I think it makes it really, really uh, easy to understand for our listeners. So uh, I know in February, the Native American Rights Fund launched a three-year project, and it will study existing laws and policies that fall short of effective protection. So tell us more about these efforts and, and how they're going to be, it sounds like, in your view, a better solution to these co-managed models that we're, we're hearing about today. Well, actually, I'm not doing a comparative um, uh, analysis here. I think anything that anything that people are trying to do sincerely, genuinely, and good faith to protect sacred places is a worthy enterprise. But they have to be willing to accept the the possibility that they're wrong about many of the details. And one thing that so you have lots of ways of approaching sacred places protection. The administration right now could protect uh, places where Native students or hostage students were um, killed, died, uh, buried, thrown in a mass grave, uh, thrown in an unmarked grave, or marked and cataloged uh, extensively, no matter what, there were 
lots and lots of Native people, children, who were left at the boarding schools. And I can understand how the Defense Department might want to clear the area and uh, not have it be a cemetery because it's a valuable piece of that Carlisle property, and they probably want to use it for something else. But I, I think that should kind, kind of thing should be stopped right now, and that all of these places should be declared, and this can be done administratively, under for those things that for those unmarked graves and marked graves that are on public lands that are on the federal properties mm-hmm. should be declared hallowed ground right now. They can be done. That can be done. And that means even if all of the people are repatriated, that's still hallowed ground. That's where these children were for some of them over a century now. Susanna, so that's- I, you know- yeah, when you mention it, I just think it's it's poignant because um, you mentioned Carlisle and some of these other schools. But I remember when I went to Haskell years ago, there, there's a cemetery at Haskell, and there are very, very old graves there at Haskell. And what's a little bit different maybe from Haskell from some of these other sites is that Haskell is, is still a college. It's a tribal college. It's still under the management of DOI. It still has students there. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on locations like that, where where we still have an active Native presence, but we have this legacy, this history there, and we have a site that um, could very well need protection as well. What's your thought on, on a place like Haskell that has graves as well? Well, that should be declared uh, a, a, a memorial, should be memorialized uh, either administratively or legislatively. Uh, whatever mechanism really doesn't matter at this point. It should be done quickly. Uh, some sort of memorialization of it to be to declare it hallowed ground and to not be disturbed. Uh, mm-hmm. We see in recent Haskell history uh, the hallowed ground of the Wakarusa wetlands was um, uh, paved over for a state highway under a former senator who who purported to apologize for atrocities committed against Native peoples, but then had a, had a disclaimer saying, oh, but you can't do anything with it. You, here's an apology, but so what? Uh, and it, ironically, some people want to, to accept that apology, which is like accepting a suicide note or something for themselves. And the Wakarusa wetlands, when Sam Brownback uh, was governor of of Kansas after he was a senator um, and did the phony apology bit, uh, was um, he he put the final nail in the coffin, if you will, uh, for that highway, an extension of a highway which had numerous alternative. Uh, sites uh, to go right through that. Now, why is Wakarusa Wetlands important? It's a sacred place because ceremonies were done there. It's a sacred place because that's where students ran to Mm -hmm. hide from hard shoes and to hide from from the torture that 
that they were under in the old days uh, at Haskell. Haskell's not the same boarding school as it was back then. It was it was the, a model um, a torture chamber and corporal punishment um, boarding school at one point, and it's completely changed around. And why? Because Native people started to run it. That's why. And so now it's a very different thing. So people shouldn't confuse this with with some sort of call to get rid of Haskell or right, anything right. because Haskell's a terrific place. But but the, but right the legacy now, is there though. Those those graves are there. That land is there. Um, and I totally agree. Yeah, it's a totally different institution. But there still is a history. So I appreciate that you saying um, you know it should be declared hallowed ground. And I remember those wetlands. I remember why, and nobody even ever had to tell me that it was that it was a special area, that there was a significant spiritual area. I just remember being in that South Edge of campus there one day after I had been there maybe a few months and just walking through there, and I could feel it. Nobody had to tell me that there was something special there, that there was there was a strong significance to that land. So we're speaking now with Dr. Suzanne Schoen Harjo, and we're learning more about what it takes to protect uh, some of these sacred lands. Uh, there's some recent development there at Department of Interior to promote co-management alongside tribes. And Suzanne Harjo says that's half a loaf. We need to go a little bit deeper and we need to think more about giving that land back and taking full stewardship, full uh, management of those properties. So we're going to talk more with Suzanne after the break, and, and we're going to learn more about what's going on there at the Native American Rights Fund and what they're doing to initiate policies and laws to protect sacred land. So folks, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. School districts around the country are losing teachers. Some districts are even recruiting teachers from other countries to fill the void. Teacher vacancies are extending the effect on students after the pandemic. We'll hear about how Native administrators are coping with persistent teacher shortages on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. How can tribes and the U.S. government work together to protect important lands? That's our show today, and we welcome your comments. Is the federal government the right entity to manage sacred places, or do you think there's a better solution? Join the discussion at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with Suzanne Harjo. She's a NARF advisor and just overall somebody very knowledgeable about sacred places in Native America. And Suzanne, um, this NARF uh, project that you and others are involved in uh, to initiate policies and laws to protect sacred lands, can you tell us more about that? Yes, indeed. I'm part of that project is looking at a very important area uh, that has been a missing piece in 
dealings on sacred places and protections of sacred places, looking at the language that has been used, I mean, we always think of language as our heritage languages not being translated properly, and that's one issue. But we're looking at, even in English, we have language difficulties with, with different fields. There are people who spend their life just thinking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen on disestablishment issues. Are you establishing a religion? Or are you not establishing a religion under the First Amendment? Uh, these are really uh, esoteric, even in legal circles, kinds of um, examinations and arguments. And what I think we've gotten lost in the language of religious freedom when it comes to protection of, of Native peoples, and that that has, it's been so distorted. We need to take a look at the language that's being used and come up with a common language that, that we can really um, use for the purpose. If we mean to protect sacred places, then how do we do that? I mean, one way to do it is uh, to have an executive order that will um, craft that will tell everyone, tell the agencies to work with Native peoples to come up with consent agreements. So that's one way to do this, and a way that, that gets both the idea of consent into the idea of agreement, because you either have an agreement or you don't. That means you either have consenting parties or you don't. But because the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has the term of art, free prior and informed consent, the State Department and others are very much against that and, and have been for an almost hysterical kind of reason that once Native people have veto power, then, you know, there would go the country. I mean, th th that's absolutely preposterous. And there should be a way to, for the federal agencies to understand consent uh, as something that is uh, just an ordinary part of an agreement. And this has been done under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, uh, since its inception, since 1990. There those agreements, the agreements, you have to have the consent of the Native peoples to do studies, for example. You, they can't just run out, as they could before 1990, uh, willy-nilly and, and do studies on us. And that, that's our prerogative, is to consent or not consent, uh, to agree or not agree. And in some cases, there has been agreement, some cases not, to studies, to uh, other things. And all, it all depends on the history of the Native peoples, on their history with the um, federal government, with the state government, uh, all of the entities. And that kind of um, uh, that kind of agreement really has to be put in place so you get rid of this 
superior to inferior consultation kind of approach. Uh, You know, if consultation is the only thing around, then great, we'll consult. It shouldn't be the only kind of thing around. the, The standard should be consent. Now, State Department doesn't like that because they say that gives a veto right to Native peoples. Well, and so what if it does? That's mm. what an agreement is. If you're vetoing an agreement, if you're not agreeing to agree, then that's not consenting. On the other hand, you might get consent because there are lots of things that the federal government can do that Native peoples want. Now, a model for co-management, going back to that, is um, um, Kachikatui. Uh, the uh, Tent Rocks Monument um, co-management agreement between the BLM and uh, – I guess I have to spell that out because of Black Lives Matter. We all think BLM is Black Lives <laughs> Matter now, it, and it was, it was the Bureau of Land Management and okay. still is. So we, uh, I have to train myself not to use that acronym. Um, um, so that with BLM uh, Bureau of Land Management and and uh, the Cocha de Pueblo, and why that's such a good co-management agreement is because it recognizes the right and through process the right of the Pueblo to close the premises to public entrance whenever and for whatever purpose without having to state the purpose. So they don't have to say, we're having a ceremony on Tuesday and we'll, it'll last till nine. They don't have to say anything, just it's closed. Okay. Okay. Suzanne, I'm sorry. And I, that's so... a hugely important thing. Yeah. And, and along those lines, so I, I you know, back to the, the subject of co-management and, you mentioned, you know, here at, there at Cochiti and, and the right to just close the premises. And I, I do want to say that, you know, there are critics um, that are arguing that, that bringing tribes in adds another layer of bureaucracy into the management of, of public lands. And, for example, this situation here, like, you know, you have a, a tribe that can just um, at their own will close access to a space. So. Is there any valid concern to those critics that say, you know, there shouldn't be another layer of bureaucracy with tribes and co-management of these lands? What's your thought on that? Boy, is that a first world consideration that that's that comes from a whole place of privilege. Uh, The layers of bureaucracy were added when these places, these sacred places were confiscated uh, illegally and call public lands or the public domain or the forest service or you know the bureau of land management when they were confiscated from native peoples as sacred places and turned into parks and forests and refuges and now some of those have worked in our favor so we want to be a part of that if they mm-hmm. have been protected great Let's let's do that more. But this isn't adding another layer to um, protection of parks. This is this is debureaucratizing, de-bureaucratizing. the federal the federal system uh, in order to add more protection 
for sacred places. And some of those sacred places, if they're already on federal lands, on what is now federal land and where the federal jurisdiction exists in some cases, the um, the, the the public already has a right to be there, has permission to be there. What what happens when you have a sacred place, like at Kachukatui, uh, where it's known as a sacred place for ceremonies have occurred since time immemorial and do periodically, and therefore places must be closed during those periods, that that's a respect thing. The okay. people are learning okay. about the place to an sure. extent they never have before. Susanna, and I'm they're sorry. I'm, respect. I want to bring in another. I really appreciate all your comments. I really do. All your observations. Always super on point, uh, like you always are. But we do have an, another guest, uh, and I want to be cognizant of everybody's time. So, folks, if you've got a, a question or a comment for today, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And joining us now from OK Owenge Pueblo is Joe Garcia, head councilman for OK Owenge and an advisor for the Sacred Places Project from the Native American Rights Fund. He's also the former president and vice president for the National Congress of American Indians. He is OK Owenge Pueblo. Joe, welcome back to Native America Calling. Yeah, thank you for having me, and uh, greetings to my friend and sister, uh, Doctor. Absolutely, Joe. And, and I want to ask you, how important is it now to have tribes acting as co-managers of federal public lands? Do you see any drawbacks at all to tribes taking on this role? Well, uh, I think it's a it's a good opportunity. It's a good move, but we've we've got to be cognizant of what what does it lead up to and uh i'm in agreement with uh uh the other party that uh it's important to realize that we really we really are and so i think there there's there may be a misunderstanding from the word get go about what we mean by co-management and if co-management is means we got to be 50% us and 50% the federal government, that's not gonna work. I think it's gotta be looked at a different way. And in my view, I would see that as co-management would be the people and the tribes that are familiar with these sites, important sites, cultural sites, uh, have a better handle at the way it was, the way it should be, and the way it should remain, rather than going to bureaucratic policy that someone else established, and that's, you've already talked about that, the Forest Service, the uh, BLM, and other federal agencies that, that took over the lands without permission to begin with and never had any insight about what they were doing when it comes to the cultural activities and the cultural beliefs of the tribes themselves. So, uh, uh, but it's a starting place. and. Uh, the executive order that was mentioned earlier, I think, is the uh, is the best place to start. And so I'm along with uh, uh, Dr. Harjo about that. So uh, that's okay. how I feel. And uh, we need to talk a little bit about about the word religion. And religion is not what this is about for Okewinge, and it is for many of the pueblos and many other tribes throughout the land that. When you talk about religion, that's that's a subset of of our culture 
and who we are. It's the spirit of the culture of Okawinga, the land that we sit on. It's all sacred to us. And so it's our way of life. And that is not even close to what they mean when they say religious freedom. Mm-hmm. That So that's a misnomer in my book, and it is to a lot of Pueblo country. So, Okay. Joe, let's go back and, you know, talk about what this co-management really means. And like you mentioned, uh, you know, 50-50, that's just not the right way to do it in your mind. So I want to ask you, I mean, I mean, we talk about these lands, these these sacred lands, these culturally significant lands to Native people. I mean, what types of capacities, what types of skill sets are tribes best able to offer these unique land co-management partnerships? Why do they need to listen to us, and why should we be involved? What are those specific skills that we know that nobody else knows about taking care of these lands, Joe? Okay, well, uh, I can cite uh, several sites back on the uh, uh, Coma Peak. It's to the west of us at Okewinge. There's some cultural sites up there, and they're not just cultural sites. They're active sites for us. And our pilgrimage is up to that place. Uh, there are there are plants, there are healing plants, there are trees, and there are things that people don't know about that is sacred to Okewinga and to at least the all of the pueblos from that peak. And we've been managing the 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 forest lands and as much as we can the plant life up in those areas. Uh, with little or uh, any help from the people that the forest people that are really in charge of that land, we do have access to it. We have agreements with the uh, uh, Forest Service, but uh, that's not enough. In order for us to maintain, we do have the knowledge base to continue managing or to continue doing that effectively. And so the skill set really is about first, number one, is you have to be knowledgeable about the culture. What is what and what what is it used for and why? If if you're not an Okewinga member, you're not going to have that skill set because you've not been exposed to it. There's a lot of other activities that go on culturally that the outside world is not knowledgeable about and that's done purposely and that's really what keeps us going and keeping as well is that this is our way of life and so if it if it gets out there's there's our spirit there's our culture there's our livelihood gone and so i think that's a part that we need to maintain and when you're talking about these sacred land sacred sites that's the same approach unfortunately a lot of these lands that we're talking about have already been disturbed, have already been uh, ruined by outsiders because they were public places. Even though there may have been restrictions to those sites, uh, there still have been disturbed and uh, a lot of things have changed. And so we're coming in after, what, 100 years of uh, of inactivity on the federal side into protecting these sites. Uh, they've done the what the bureaucracy allows for, and that's about it. So we're going to look to the future. We've got to be involved, and I think we can add that resource base that would be more in tune with the land themselves and for what the land is meant to be to the tribes. 
You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on tribal co-management of federal lands today. Is there an area of land that you wish your tribe could co-manage with the government? Or perhaps a piece of land that your tribe you wish would just take back and take full control of? Full ownership, full management. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. Let's get some phone lines going. Let's get some calls going. want to hear from some of our listeners. Still plenty of time to chime in on co-managing federal land with the federal government. That's the focus of our show today. What do you think? Are policymakers going far enough to make sure tribes have power to protect sacred lands managed by the federal government? What about state lands? Do you think uh, we need to look at similar issues regarding state lands as well? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. We'll be right back. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know 1 in 10 people will have a seizure and 1 in 26 will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, unprovoked seizures. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Visit epilepsy.com slash first aid to learn about seizure first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join our discussion, tribes and the federal government sharing management roles on culturally important lands. Let's get some calls going. 1-800-996-2848, the number to share your thoughts. That's 1-800-996-2848. We've got a caller on the line right now, Ray, listening on KIPI from the Black Hills area in South Dakota. Ray, thanks for calling in today. Hey, no problem. I like the conversation, Dr. Harrow and Harjo, and other ones talking about protecting the lands. The government was supposed to help, and the states do not want that. Well, we got the same problem up here in the Black Hills area for hundreds of years. We got some of the beautiful land, too. Medicine, you know, formations, stuff that go way back. We still play up there. And we got the same problem. You know, we go up there, we get treated because we live off the reservation. I mean, off Black Hills, on reservations. So when you do make a little, you know, movement in that way, whatever reservation you're from, some get treated good, some don't. So I agree with them that, you know, what land belongs to us, it goes way back. They do not have right to, you know, to have us, you know, try to make a living on it because we already know how. Educate Chi, I want to say that in a quota. Just let them know I back them up, all right? Thank you. Ray, thank you for that call. I appreciate you chiming in. And, um... You're up in South Dakota, and we've got another guest on the show that's up there in South Dakota as well. So let's go ahead and introduce him now. Joining us on the show today is Oglala Lakota Nation President Kevin Killer. President Killer, thanks for joining us, and welcome back. Um, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Look forward to this discussion. That's our traditional greeting. Lakota, shake your hand with a warm and good heart. Thank you. And my English name is... Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, President Killer. And um, let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about uh, something that's going on up there with your tribe. And you folks recently co-purchased land near the Wounded Knee Massacre site. What was the motivation for that decision? Uh, that's correct. Um, a a council, council member from that district, um, you know, approached our office and 
you know, just inquired about the possibility of that. I know it's been in discussion uh, numerous times, and I think it's been in dispute since the 1930s. And uh, there's been various proposals, including, you know, having uh, certain celebrities uh, purchase some of those properties. Um, and and I, I think originally it was, might have been assessed for, uh, uh, I can't remember the amount, but, um, but yeah, we ended up uh, moving all that on that purchase. And because of that, um, you know, we, we had other tribes be involved as well. And one of the things that came out of it is, is that, you know, people might look at the price and, and maybe be critical of it, but at the end of the day, healing has no price, honestly. And that, that's the one thing to reiterate is that I think in all these, in all these examples, you know, it's, it's, I think there's an element of healing that's, that's really profound and strong and being able to help return our, our properties back to the original um, inhabitants and, and our original peoples. So that way we can begin that process of healing. So what is the long-term plan for this new land that you've purchased? Or not new land, I should say, but newly purchased land? Um, well, you know, we've had several meetings with the survivors associations, and, and there's there's various ones. You know, originally, uh, Tonka Bigfoot was from uh, Standing Rock, and his band was coming down to uh, down to Pine Ridge, uh, and they were, you know, it was in the middle of winter. And then there's relatives also in Shine River and relatives in Rosebud, and we have a, a pretty large contingent here as well in Pine Ridge. And you know, each one of these um, these survivors associations um, talks amongst themselves, and and you know, the purpose of those meetings was trying to get them together to to um, to just you know discuss what was going to happen with that land. And it was you know overwhelming that there's you know there is to be no development there. And I, I agree with that, just because you know it's still an active um, burial site. It's still there's still a lot of artifacts, you know, in the in the region that that um, you know should be left undisturbed, and and just making sure that you know people have peace of mind and uh, a place to rest. And I think that's so important in a lot of these examples of just you know being able to respect the land and respect what you know what what we had to endure and and just making sure that we're um, always cognizant of that especially in all these uh, these, these talks of re- reacquiring pieces of land okay now as i understand it the oglala lakota your people and the cheyenne river sioux tribe um you you purchased this property together um and you've since petitioned doi to place that land into trust and i'm I'm interested, and in how will that work exactly in terms of the management? Because uh, you folks, Oglala Lakota, you hold title to the land, but will both tribes have an equal say in how the land is actually managed going forward? Um, I mean, I think there's going to be just a general consensus, and, and I, I'm sure that you know the provision that was passed with Shine River um, was basically the same language, and especially around you know there's to be no development. And I think both, I can't speak for any of our survivors associations, but um, I, I, you know, it seems there is a strong sense that, that they just don't want no development there. You know, at the end of the day, there's, you know, because in the past, I think in the seventies, when it was first proposed there, you know, the, uh, the previous family from what I, from what I remember is that they, they wanted to, you know, offer the tribe one seat on this larger board 
and they were going to commercialize it and, you know, turn it into a tourist attraction. And that was just the no-go with our, our community back then and still no-go. And, you know, and I, and I think it just shows kind of like the, the worldview of, you know, who we are, what we respect and what we think about. So I think, you know, as tribes and as, you know, survivors of this and, and our relatives and our communities, um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that, that's the broad consensus from, both tribes, regardless of who's in leadership or who's the president or who's on council, um, you know, because because this is like a new day and it's setting a new path forward for healing. And I think that's the important piece of this. President Killer, we have a, a really interesting comment from somebody who called in. They don't want to come on, on the air, but they have a question they want to ask. And um, their question is that for a non-Native person who's listening to our show today about sacred lands, um, they'd like to get a more clear definition on what exactly that means. What does it mean when we as Native people refer to sacred lands? And, and how do we best get that message across to non-Native people? President Killer, what's your thought on that? Um, I mean, I would imagine, you know, it, it's any land where, you know, I mean, again, it, it's just going to vary, you know, it's, you know, I'm not the, the end all and be all on this, but in spiritual leaders are different, every single tribe, every single nation. But, you know, from what I, from my, from what I was told, you know, by, by my uncle and, um, he's, a, he's also a medicine man, you know, he, he said that, you know, originally, you know, when we were looking at pieces of land, you know, they would pray about some of these areas and that's, you know, whatever, you know, came to them, that's where we would be at. So I think that's kind of the reason why we're partly in this area now, um, you know, at Pine Ridge, but, you know, our leaders had to pray about some of these, these places where we're at, you know, and, and I think part of it too, is just making sure that we're always, um, you know, looking at that history, you know, comparing it with what's written and you know reading being able to read between the lines because there's truth in there somewhere but it's been so convoluted over the years to where say okay well what is sacred land you know it's really honestly like where you pray where you live and you know as crazy horse said too is you know where your where your relatives library you know and i think that's a pretty strong consensus of you know what we hold true where your relatives library uh Thank you, President Killer, to help put that in perspective. And I'd like to bring uh, Dr. Suzanne Schoen Harjo in as well. And Suzanne, do you have anything to add to that uh, for a non-Native person curious about what we mean as Native people when we talk about sacred land? Okay, thank you for there for the people around the world. We are the only ones who are called on to define the sacred. No one else, no one else has that burden, and we're supposed to define the sacred, and that's what's led many of us who are in the sacred places protection uh, movement uh, for the past century or so, <laughs> at least a half century, um, uh, to to say that one of the essential elements of any legislation is no definition of the sacred. And I want to reinforce what, what the chairman just uh, said, that um, it really is self-declaration. It's, it's sacred because the people who hold it sacred say it's sacred. That's the answer. And no one else, and certainly not you know, some bureaucrat 
somewhere in some federal agency who doesn't talk to anyone higher than themselves uh, and expects to talk to all of our people who who have high positions um, will demand proof. And just because someone has demanded proof of you of the sacred doesn't mean you have to accept that challenge. It's it's a it's a fool's errand to to try to define the sacred. So these places are sacred because the best of our people, our spiritual leaders, our religious leaders, say it's sacred, okay. and that it has been so down through the ages, or okay. has been it, or it's part of a visionary process. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and let Joe Garcia chime in as well. Uh, Joe, Suzanne refers to, to trying to determine whether uh, land is sacred or, or define that to other people as a, a fool's errand. It's, uh, it's, it's not necessary. There's no need to, to explain or define why land is sacred to us as Native people. Would you agree with that, Joe? Yes, I do agree wholeheartedly. And uh, and what that really means is that we are the people that designate this is our land, this is our cultural site, this is sacred to us, this is who we are, this is where we were born, our spirits are born, we are part of the world, and we are part of the world in this way. And so nobody else should, should know that, and that's what I meant when I spoke about the Indian Religious Freedom Act. Uh, they're talking about religious freedom. This is not religion. This is culture. This is sacred. This is who we are. And you can't change that. And, and the reason I said what I said about in, in my language is that there is no uh, English word that I'm aware of that, that says the, gives it credence uh, about what sacred is. And that's a, a word made up by bureaucrats. And so... You know, it, our land is our land, our cultural site, our sacred site, our beliefs, our spirits, and who we are. That's what defines it. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And I'd like to go back to President Killer. And, and we've got a few minutes before we have to wrap up the show, President Killer. But I want to talk more about this recently purchased land uh, near the Wounded Knee site. And um, is your tribe, the Oglala Lakota, are you looking at any other lands with, with similar types of, of co-management or co-purchase objectives? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's in the works right now. I know that we do have a proposal moving forward for, uh, it's called Lake Creek National Wildlife Refuge. And that, that area has been, um, you know, it's, it's on the southeastern part, southeastern corner of our reservation, almost close to Rosebud. If you think about it, it's almost central in South Dakota on the bottom part, but um, really thinking about where, you know, like some of the history behind how these areas were acquired and, and really, you know, examining that. And that's something that, you know, I challenge, you know, all of our tribal leaders and listeners on the call and definitely give a shout out to our TV radio listeners. Um, but, you know, just making sure that we're looking at the history behind all these, you know, how all these places were acquired, because as you keep, you know, digging down, digging down, digging down, you're going to see um, things that people don't want to open up. And especially in some areas that are non-native areas or non-native places, 
Um, and that's something that we really need to look at and figure out how do we deal with that history, but also how do we um, look at the co-management co and co-stewardship areas of those places. And because eventually that's going to, you know, lead to um, some, you know, new new uh, discoveries, but also new new businesses. And and I think it's going to lead to new opportunities for tribes, you know. And so that, that's just one of the areas. I know that there's a couple others that we're in talks about, but that that's kind of where we're at. So thank you. Absolutely, President Killer. And, and I want to ask you, so where are you at now in terms of uh, the process of, of placing that land, this newly purchased land, into trust? Do you envision that happening anytime soon? Um, yeah, we're going to start. As soon as everything's finalized with the, the purchase, we're going to start that process immediately. And I know that there's also been some interest from congressional members to help kind of speed that process up as well. So we'll we'll consider that, and we have to take it to tribal council. But that's definitely something that we're going to try to move immediately on as soon as everything's finalized. And, and going forward, are you looking at any other lands? Um, you know, based on these new DOI directives to facilitate these co-management partnerships between some of these federal agencies and tribes, is that something that the Oglala Lakota are looking at as well going forward? Um, it is definitely, and I think it's just you know understanding and 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 kind of walking through this first process of Lake Creek National Wildlife Refuge, and understanding the whole enormity of that because that's I believe that's seven thousand acres, um, but originally that was Ogallala homelands, and and again that's what I was talking about earlier about the the process of you know how this was put into trust because there's been disputes about how even that that. Uh, Lake Creek, our district became, you know, a part of Martin. And that's part of the history that we as a tribe need to, to get more details around, but also get more details around how that became a wildlife refuge, even though, you know, our, the majority of our citizens didn't consent to that. So again, that, that's what I'm, that's what some of the history that I'm talking about and how do we um, deal with that. And, and there's going to be same similar discussions around other areas i think surrounding our reservation um you know i know that there's been talks about the black hills there's also been talks about the badlands and and just trying to figure out what that might look like but again this is all a process and you know we have to have the capacity to bring that on board for a tribe and that's something that's a tribal council decision we're gonna have to wrap up the show now to our guests dr suzanne shone harjo joe garcia president kevin killer Thank you all for what's been a very engaging conversation on tribal stewardship of federally managed lands. Join us tomorrow for another discussion on Native America Calling. We'll talk about the lingering teacher shortage that affects Native students. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. 
Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.